Nehemiah chapter 8. We are picking up in our series. And in this particular chapter, we have that very famous verse of Scripture. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we're going to look at some of the context of this to understand better its meaning so that we certainly can get the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Last week, we looked at the list of those who made the trip and the significance of those things. You can go back a couple of weeks and catch that if you need to. But let's pick up here, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded. Now, when you look at this first verse here, and it says they gathered together as one man in the open square... Use the same description in Ezra when they were talking about the, uh, when they got together for the feast, they gathered together as one. And when you think of all the situations that had caused division among them, that is quite a statement. And I don't know that we have enough from this book to figure out all the ins and outs about how they gathered together as one in the open square, but that is how they described them. So they all came together and Ezra described to, brought the book of the law of Moses and he was reading from it. The book of the law of course, refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, so the historical, prophetical, those are left out. So, verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, all who understand would be those who knew the language and were old enough to comprehend the reading. Kind of have to hit those two things. There are some people might be old enough to understand the reading but couldn't comprehend the language. That wouldn't be in that group. The people, of course, they were not just present, but they gave attention to the words. There are sometimes people just show up. They, they're, they're, they're there in presence, but they're not giving their attention to anything that's going on. But it says that they gave their attention to the reading of the words. Now, Ezra would read for about six hours each day from the sun up until about noon. And he would do that until he completed these books. Can you imagine sitting and hearing the first five books of Genesis read to you? Now, it is likely that Ezra had a long abstinence from Jerusalem. There are some uh, things you can read on the book of Nehemiah and Ezra showing up again and some of them feel that Ezra was only gone for a brief period of time here and there, but that he was at Jerusalem most of this, this time. But that would seem to not be the case because if Ezra was there, then the problems that Nehemiah had to deal with in the first few chapters, I don't think would have been going on. We saw the oppression of the rich in Nehemiah chapter 4. We had the mixed marriages. In Nehemiah chapter 6, that also shows up again later on. Some we haven't gotten to yet was a desecration of the Sabbath. That was in Numbers, or Nehemiah 10 and Nehemiah 13. The negligence with respect to the tithes and the offerings was in Nehemiah chapter 10. Now this is six hours of reading. It's not six hours of preaching or teaching. There can be a little bit of a difference on that, I remember uh, uh, one of the few radio people that I used to listen to, Rush Limbaugh. He would 
he would talk about the art of reading on air. He says you can't, not everybody can do it. And you can't just read. You'll lose people's attention. And I was fascinated as he would describe the art of reading on air and all the things you get to do. And sure enough, as I was listening to him talk about it, I said, yeah, you're right. If you just sit there and read, I mean, you can lose people on that. On that. It's much easier if you just begin to talk it through. I don't know what Ezra did to keep people's interest for six hours of reading, because that, be, that can be tough. Uh, maybe he did stop here and there and tried to explain some things. Uh, we don't know because we're not there, and all we're told is that he did uh, reading, and it was about six hours a day. Since they started this in the seventh month, this is going to be started around one of the fall feasts, you may remember, as we covered them before in the book of Ezra. And I believe that would be, it starts out with the Feast of Trumpets, and then we're going to have the Feast of Tabernacles later on in the month. Let's go on to, to verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and on, at his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hasham, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mashulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen. Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. A few things to note here in this section is that they made a platform for the purpose of helping people to hear and to get a visual, keep the reading of the law in view, so that Ezra could be in view and they could hear better because he would be elevated. So they did these things. I wrote these things down. I felt a little bit like Paul as he was making uh, his, uh, you know, I say this, not necessarily to God. (laughs) This is one of those things that I say. This is kind of my personal view. When you look at these things that are made, this is what they did. They made something to enhance the reading of the Word of God. My personal view on that is I see scriptural support in a lot of modern things that help us see and hear better. Mics, sound systems, projectors, monitors, stages, sign language, all those things, they all help people to hear or to understand or to see, get a visual of these things better. None of them are in the Bible. They didn't have any of these things in the Bible, in the New Testament church. They weren't there, but I still see scriptural support. And you look at this particularly. They did these things for the purpose of seeing and hearing. They wanted that to be going on. There are things that uh, that don't add to the seeing and hearing, though. And they are really just for the... Uh, they have appeal and they even attract more numbers. But the overall effect, in my opinion takes away from the hearing and the focusing and the understanding. And it doesn't have benefit. Those things like smoke and lasers and light shows and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't like them in the church. I was in one church service one time, went out to Tulsa when we were for our yearly uh, venture out there. And of course, Sunday morning, we would always visit different churches. And I remember visiting one church and had a lot of people in the church and a lot of celebrities were in the church. In fact, we even sat near one celebrity that was made known to us. Uh, I, I don't even forget how it was. Some basketball player was uh, was uh, right near us. He played on one of the uh, L.A. teams, I think, at the time. Um, but they turned the lights down so you couldn't see anything. 
and then they just had some lasers or some lights that are up there on the stage, and I don't remember if they had smoke or not, but it, it didn't help me any. <laughs> I know that, that there are other people there, and they seem to, to enjoy it. Uh, but I don't, my personal thing is I don't, if it doesn't age in the seeing and hearing, then I don't see there's a whole lot. But you see those churches and they got the big monitors up there on the side and they take the, the video that they're broadcasting, they put it up there. Well, that can aid in the, in the scene. Maybe somebody doesn't have a, a direct view of the stage, but they can see one of the monitors and that just helps them in the scene part. I see more support for that than I do for some of these other things. But anyway, let's go on with the things that are here. Now it says, in this, this spot that they, when they heard that the, the word being read, that they all stood up. There's probably not a good, whole lot of good reasons to feel that they stood up for the whole six hours. And I'm going on six hours that they did from 6 a.m. to noon. That would be a six-hour time frame of, of reading. Can you imagine showing up someplace at 6 a.m. in the morning and standing until noon? That would be a tough thing to do. It was probably more along the lines where they stood out of reverence because this thing had, had started maybe out of reverence for Ezra. Uh, it is likely that Ezra had been gone and this, as he came back, they said, Ezra, why don't you take on the role of reading this? Uh, step into that role. You were the teaching scribe before and let him step into that again. But I don't think that they stood for all those, all those hours. But they probably wanted to at least honor the person or honor the occasion of the word being read and it would there was made mention of it here. Verse 7, And Yeshua, Vanai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebethai, Hadana, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them Understand the reading. Now these names here, they start off with the Joshua, Benai, Sherebiah, and so forth. These are Levitical families. Now I do have references if anybody is interested in seeing that, but uh, these are Levitical families. Most of those references are for parts in the future. They're not individual Levites. So this is the family of Benai, the family of Joshua, this, this uh, sort of thing. So all the Levites that would come under that family, this is what they're talking about and they would help the people to understand the law their goal is not just i want you to hear the law i want you to hear the reading of god's word i want you to understand it which should always be the goal we have to have understanding to be the main goal for anyone who reads teaches preaches or prophesies in the name of god now i came upon a list this is not my list i could have written it I read it. I said, oh man, I like this list. I wish I would have written this list. Uh, so I didn't. I want to let you know, I did not write this list. But I, I like this list. So I, I saw this list list of um, one, two, three, four things. I'll read them to you here. If people leave knowing five helpful hints to a better life, but do not have greater understanding of God's word, the preacher has failed. I thought, yeah, that's probably good. We're not here just to get people into a better life. We're here to teach them the Word of God. If people leave having been amused by humor, entertained by anecdotes, or captivated by dramatic stories, but do not have a greater understanding of God's Word, the preacher has failed. 
If people leave motivated to action or praying a prayer, but this is not based on a greater understanding of God's word, the preacher has failed. If people leave admiring the preacher, but do not have a greater understanding of God's word, the preacher has failed and will be held to account before God. I thought, boy, that is a good list. <laughs> Those are the things that are important. And this is what these, these folks are doing. The important thing is, we want you to understand. So we've got all these people here. Here's the reading. Now all these folks are here to help you understand what God's Word is saying. So why is making sure God's people have help to understand God's Word? Why is it so important? We just don't just... Don't want to just make sure that they understand or have the ability to understand because of what is taught. We've got to make sure that we give them help, extra help. How is it that we can do that? Well, the first thing is because the things of God are spiritually discerned. They are not mentally understood. It's not our intellect that we get involved there. And the Holy Spirit brings gifts along to help that discernment come. Second, the Word of God was given in a different language than we speak. Old Testament is mostly given in Hebrew. New Testament is just about completely Greek. That's a different language than the one that we speak. So teachers uh, are raised up and they are helpful in understanding what the original language meant and how that carries over to, to our time, to our language. Sometimes, a, th- a third reason would be sometimes our our minds are just slow to understand things that convict our hearts. If that's convicting my heart, my mind doesn't always want to get behind it. I kind of want to stay in the dark of that a little bit so that uh, I don't have that conviction. We need others to come alongside of us and spell it out for us. And lastly, truth comes in layers. I've always uh, told you, truth is progressive. God is always sharing more with us. But whatever He shares with us is truth. So when he shares more with us down the road, it will fit in with the truth we've already received. It's progressive. When he shares us new, it doesn't disengage us from the old. If he tells us truth, this, this is still truth. But now I'm going to show you something that's deeper, progressive. It's kind of like an art restorer. When they clean a painting that's been uh, buried or somehow made dirty, that's an art that they had to do to, to bring that painting back. But when they do, the colors become brighter. The details are more clear and we can see that painting so much better because of the work that they did and that's really the the job that people in the body of Christ who have the responsibility of helping people to understand that's what they're there to do it said here that they read distinctly boy I'd say when I read that that jumps out at me because there are some people in the body of Christ that I have listened to today and they do not speak distinctly and they don't speak in a way that that is helpful. You know, they have a lot of repetitive phrases. Uh, they're just, they don't work at being distinct in the words that they teach, in the words that they say. And I appreciate it when certain ministers, you can tell they put the work in. You can understand them very, very clearly. It says they gave the sense, that is they, how to apply or how to live it. They gave the sense. Let me read that part of the verse again. Verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now I'm going to read from three other translations here for you. They're not going to come up on the screen. I just want to read them for you. 
Verse 8 in the NET, they read from the book of the law, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus the people gained understanding from what was read. The New Living Translation, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. The New Century Version, this one's not my favorite one, but you can still see they're getting that same aspect here. They read from the book of the teachings of God and explained what it meant so the people understood what was being read. So that is their goal. Make sure that people understood what was being read. Quite a difference from Jesus' day when you had the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. They didn't want people to necessarily understand. They just wanted people to do what they said. Nehemiah 8 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. All involved here. Talking about Nehemiah, Ezra and the Levites. The ones that were there to help them understand. All those involved. They, all the people that here that are involved, Nehemiah, Ezra and the Levites, they all knew the response was going to be detrimental. This response of mourning was detrimental to what God was doing. Now I wonder, this is a question I asked, did they all just know this? Or as it was going on, did they come together and meet and discuss this a little bit? Hey, what do you think about this response? They're all weeping and they're sad and, and so forth. And did somebody come up and say, hey, this isn't going to help. we got to make sure that they understand not to be in this, this moat. I don't know how it came about, whether they all already knew that or they came together. But they all went from there and they said, hey, y'all, Stop the weeping. We can't have this going on. This day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn, nor weep. Quit it. However they came to it, they were all on the same page. Now here we can see as they read the word, the word of God had a desired effect. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So when the word of God was read, it did that. They received the correction that came from the Word of God. And they said, oh, we have, we've not done so well. We, we need to do better. And they came under conviction and they were saddened by the things that they had, they've seen they were doing and what the Word of God said not to be doing. And they realized we've come up short here. And so they were very sad about all this. And so there was a lot of weeping and there was a lot of mourning going on. Now when they say here, do not mourn, the corrective work of Scripture is good. But it should not overshadow God's work of mercy and grace. Whenever we see the corrective work of God going on, it will never overshadow, if it's of God, it will never overshadow His mercy and grace. Those who allow or promote such, such as the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they're not looking for growth in themselves and they're not looking for growth in others. They're out to promote their own self-righteousness or their influence over other people. When they get into doing these things, letting the, cor- the correction overshadow the grace and the mercy. Now, Ezra and the leaders, they saw this and they looked to stop it. In Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Our sin consciousness should never be greater than the awareness of the Savior's greatness.
We've got to make sure we keep that in line. No matter how great our sin looks to be, our Savior is greater. Or as Paul put it, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So they see this. They see this is detrimental. We've got to stop them from this time of mourning. This is a holy day. This is the day that we should be glad. Look at all the things that God is doing. Look at all the things that God is moving on. And we cannot just be here wallowing in, a, in self-pity or sadness or mourning. We've got to get out of that. We've got to be, be glad. So look at verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat and eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now that's a verse we all like, and we pull that one right on out. The joy of the Lord is my strength. A lot of people that go out and say, The joy of the Lord is my strength. Glory to God. But for a lot of people, the joy of the Lord is not their strength. They say it, but it's not changing their situation. They still feel sad. They still are mourning. There's still grief going on. Because you cannot apply a fraction of a verse and get the power of the whole thing. The verse is not about the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy is first off, put aside wrong mourning. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, there's both parts of that going on. There's a whole lot of people that want to hang on to the morning. They want to hang on to the sadness and let the joy of the Lord be their strength. No, that's not what is going on here. That is not in the context. And if I'm going to understand Ezra's words, and they are great words, but if we're going to understand and we're going to apply these words, we've got to do it the way they said. Their first off the thing they came to is they said, stop mourning. Let it go. You've got to release it. You've got to take those things that are making you sad and you've got to let them go. After you do that, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. He says, do not sorrow. It's even in the same sentence. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when sorrow comes in, it's going to sap away your strength. You can't let the sorrow stay, stay in there. It doesn't mean you can't ever be sorrowful. Sometimes sorrow just comes in. All right, well, be sorrowful for a little bit, but there's going to become a time you need to put it away. Because you can't be joyful and sorrowful. They don't coexist too well. See, this great sin consciousness they picked up through the hearing and understanding of the law would work against the strengthening joy that God gives. you got to make sure that, however, you may be convicted of sin, you may be sad that you have let God down on some things, but you need to let it go. And you need to get yourself into the joy of the Lord. Let that joy be your strength. No, no, no. I'm not going to stay over here mourning the things that I've done. I've got to let the joy of the Lord be my strength. Paul could have been sad all the rest of his days for all the people that he killed and all the things that he did against the kingdom of God. But he had to let it go and let the joy of God come in. And that's where we also have to be. If you want the joy to work upon you, you'll have to let go of the sadness and the grief in you. Or it's not going to work. Sometimes that will take a deliberate effort to go eat, enjoy, and give to others. So that's what he's telling them. Don't sit around here moping around. Go! I want you to go home. I want you to eat some good stuff. I want you to drink some sweet things. I want you to enjoy. And then I want you to go out there and give to other people. You know, sad people don't give a whole lot. (laughs) Joyful people do. And so what he's telling them is, get on out there. I want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to over here just, you know, 
not eating anything and not drinking anything because you're sad and you're mourning. No, he wants you to go on home. Enjoy yourself. This is the day of celebration. This is the feast day. This is the day that we should be not occupied with grief. I put this in your outline for you. The work of joy upon you will greatly increase if you actively shut down the work of grief in you. But you got to get rid of that grief. As long as you let the grief work in you, that joy cannot come upon you and strengthen you. Don't let that go on. It will sometimes take a deliberate effort. Sometimes that sorrow has just gotten around on, on you. And you got to say, no, I am not going to carry around this sorrow. I'm putting it away. It's not easy to always put it away. But if you will put it away and get it out, oh, it would be so much better. See, joy and sorrow are not good roommates. They don't get along too well. How many of you in your, in your past have ever had bad roommates? They sometimes live out. I had My first roommate I had going out to Raymond was the worst roommate I ever had in my entire life. Never had one as bad as that. It was terrible. I still have uh, memories of how bad that was. <laughs> it was but uh, you can't wallow in those things. I went out and found another roommate. He was a good roommate. We got along famously. Did, uh, did very well together. But you have to let go of some of the grief if the joy is going to have its work on you. You can go around confessing all you want to. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But as long as you hold on to the grief and the sadness, that joy cannot come in and strengthen you. you got to let it go. So see Ezra's full exhortation there. First off, get, the, get out of the grief. Get out of the unhappiness. And let this joy come down upon you. Verse 11, so the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Boy, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) They understood the words they were saying. Let the joy be your strength. Don't be going around sorrowful. All right, this is what you told me to do. You told me to go home. You told me to eat. You told me to... To be glad. You told me to give things to people who didn't have stuff. And there they are. They're out there doing it. They did it because they understood the words. And they weren't content to just understand. No, we're going to go out from here. We're going to apply the words. We're going to do what the Word of God has told us to do. So not only did they understand the words. They put them into practice. A whole lot of people say they understand the Word. But they're not living it. They're not putting it into practice. Verse 13. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's house, houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the Lord. So all that happened on the first day. So they all come together. So the Levites, the, the leaders of the people, they came to Ezra. They came to Nehemiah. They came to the priests and the Levites, the people that were explaining the law to them. And they said, All right, you're talking about some things. We don't have the understanding of this just yet. We need to understand it. So please help us as heads of the families, as heads of the tribes, help us to understand this. And we don't understand this in our society today. But the way these folks were set up, these heads of families taught the people in the family. No more better example of this than when Israel was coming out of Egypt. 
and they were at the mountain. And all the families, all the 12, uh, well, most of the 12 uh, tribes were in rebellion. And they followed along with the golden calves except for one family. That is the family of the Levites. The entire family. I think that's amazing. The entire family stayed away from that idolatrous worship. And when Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? All the Levites gathered up. It wasn't interspersed. All the Levites were over here because the heads of their families taught them the law, taught them the word of God, taught them the things that they knew. They didn't know all the stuff just yet. They didn't have all the things that came from Mount Sinai. But what they did know, the heads of the families taught them. And so when this contrary thing came up, they said, no, we're not going to do it. And they would not get involved. And that's why the Levites received the gift of the office of the priest because of this teaching that had gone on. So, these same heads are coming and say, you've got to teach us. You've got to help us. It is important for the leaders to understand the word and apply themselves to keep it. These are things that you have to do. If you are a head of a family, you need to make sure that you keep the word yourself. You cannot teach people things that you are not keeping or at least making an effort to keep. It is pointless to teach people about you shall not steal if you steal. <laughs> you, you can't do it. If you have the occupation of a bank robber and you're trying to teach your kids don't steal, it's not good, but that's where your, all your money comes from. You can't teach them that. Now, that one's a lot more obvious, but there's other ones that are not quite as obvious. If you're unkind, how can you teach kindness? And kids watch this sort of stuff. If you go into a restaurant and you are unkind to the wait staff, and then you teach them to be kind to each other, <laughs> it's not going to work. You got to model that kind of behavior as a parent, or in this, this case with these, the heads of the families, they needed to model the behavior that they needed to teach. So they have to get an understanding of this because if we don't live this, we can't teach it to them. And if we can't teach it to them, then the same thing that we were upset about, that we were sad about, it was going to continue to go on because we're still not going to be doing these things. If you are impatient, how can you teach the need for patience? If you lose your patience with the people on your staff, if you lose your patience with your kids, if you lose your patience with people that you work with, how can you teach them that we need to be patient with each other? We can't do it. How can you teach the problem of having a bad attitude towards other people? If you have a bad attitude towards some. If there are certain people that can get you into a bad attitude, how can you teach the people under you? You can't have a bad attitude. You've got to have a good attitude. Well, they're going to look at that and say, well, it's okay for you to have a bad attitude with these ones. And they're not going to receive. How can you teach about worshiping God if you don't worship yourself? If you get angry and frustrated easily, how can you teach others not to do so or the problems that come about if you do? If you get angry at your kids at the drop of a hat, how can you teach them not to get angry with each other? That's not going to work. If you get, if a boss gets angry with their employees, how can he say you can't spend all this time being angry with each other? Why? You've modeled that behavior. If you're going to teach it, you have to model it in some way at least. If you walk in pride, how can you teach others not to walk in pride or how to walk humbly? You can't do it. As the Word of God says, first remove the log from your own eye. 
I got to get this working for me first. And that's what these people are doing. Or they're coming and say, look, we got to get this working for ourselves. And we got to better understand it so we can teach it to other people. You don't need to be perfect in our godly walk. We don't need to be, I don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect in our godly walk to teach God's ways. But people need to see that we recognize our own shortcomings and are working to improve if they are of any reason to listen to us. If they don't see that we even recognize that I have an anger problem, that I have a pride problem, and I want to teach them about being humble, if I want to teach them about being patient, they're not going to hear it. You can't even see that you've got a problem. How can you teach me about this? How can you teach me things that you don't even walk in? But again, you don't have to walk in it 100%. If we had to walk in everything perfectly before we could teach it, there'd be nothing taught. <laughs> we wouldn't be teaching anything. But there's a difference between somebody who teaches you something and realize, all right, I'm not perfect at this, but this is how I understand it, and I'm trying to work this into my life. Now, here's the principles so you can work it into yours. That's a whole lot easier to receive that and somebody says, be ye perfect as I am perfect, and you see imperfections. That's not going to work out so well. We've got to make sure that we have that attitude, and these folks have a great attitude. They heard all this stuff on the first day, second day, they get in there. Look, we want extra time. Teach us. Help us understand how to do this thing. And if they came on the second day before the reading was going on, that means they got in there before 6 a.m. Verse 14. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil, trees, myrtle branches, palm branches and, myrtle, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So they read this, they found out something, wait a minute, there's, there's some stuff we're not doing. <laughs> it's a great attitude to have. If God said to, then we need to. I mean, that's a phenomenal attitude. If God said it, i got to work it into my life here somewhere. This is, this is something we got to do. So they, they said, they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountains. So go out there and get the materials and build these booths. Now here's the thing. Tradition did not teach them to honor this feast as God instructed. Tradition didn't do that. What they're telling you here is we didn't do it this way. It would seem that they had done the feast, but they didn't do it with the booths. They didn't make the booths. We need to change that. Because the Word of God is saying that when we do the feast, we need to build the booth and live in the booth. I don't know why they call them booths. I, I haven't figured that one out. That always fascinated me. But tradition did not teach them to honor this feast as God instructed. I wrote this question down. How much have or will you buck tradition when God's Word speaks differently? Some people have a hard time with that. Now, tradition, it should have taught them this. But just like today, traditions can get off track. Getting back on track has proven too difficult for many. Tradition just, just pulled them off. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths. Each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day of the children of Israel 
had not done so. And there was a very great gladness. Now, sometimes people read this and they say, well, I guess this feast wasn't observed. That's not really what it says. What it says is, when they observed this feast, they didn't do it with the booths. So they observed the feast, but they lived in more comfortable places while this was going on. So they just didn't do the booth part, it would seem. That would include the time of David. That would include the time of Solomon. That would include the time of all the other great king revivalists as well. They hadn't done this. So they were going to do it now. And so it says that since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until the day of the children of Israel had not done so. So again, don't hear that, that they did not observe this feast. Hear that they did not do the feast exactly as Moses laid it out in the word of God. When they got the understanding, hey, we've been doing this and we know they've been doing it because in Ezra chapter 3, Ezra describes having this, this uh, feast started up again and that was before the temple was built. Before it was finished. We're well past the temple being finished. So all those years, this feast has been observed, but not with the booths. And that's tough to leave your home, your comfort area, and do this. So this is what they were doing. Most of these people had flat roofs. So you got a flat roof. It's a great place for you to build a booth. So they would build the booth on top of their roof. Now, if it rained, guess where I'm going? Go down the side into the house. But if you're going to observe the feast, you stayed out in the rain, even though you had another place to go. The people that would build these in the courtyards, these people probably came from the villages or the towns around there. They didn't have a roof to build it on, so they built it there. But all the people, it says, all the people who came back from Babylon here, they all participated. That's a pretty good uh, number of people to participate here. Don't always see quite that much. So again, Ezra chapter 3 describes the Feast of Tabernacles before the temple was finished, but they apparently didn't do it all the ways that the law had instructed. The booths in the past seem to have been omitted. Or you could also say it this way, maybe there was just never celebrated with such gladness before. Remember in 2 Kings 23, 22, I think I, I may not have written those uh, references down, but 2 Kings 23, 22 and 2 Chronicles 35, 18 basically say the same thing, that such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. We know that all those kings observed the Passover, but they never had observed it the way Josiah did at this time. So it may be something along those lines that there was no, not such the exuberance, such the joy, or such the participation. Or maybe it was in fact that they had not used the booths. But whatever it was, this one was set apart from all the ones that had been done in the past. Verse 18. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast uh, seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So they did it exactly the way that Moses laid it out in the law, because the law was read to them. Because the people were made sure that they understood what the law was calling for, what the law was asking for, and they wanted to make sure that they, they jumped in on that and got it right away. Now, some Christians merely read the Word. They do read the Word, but that's all they do. They read it. Well, I read my chapter today. Well, I read my verse today. Well, I read my section of Scripture that I wanted to read today. And that's it. They read it, and they're up and they go. That's not going to help you. 
Others also receive its wisdom, but they don't do anything with it. So they get insight into the Scripture. Ever, ever had that happen? You hear people, they talk about the Word. Oh, I was listening to so-and-so and they were sharing things. Oh, and I got this great insight out of this thing. They share the insight, they share the wisdom they have, but you look at their life and say, you never apply these things. You never do them. You know all this stuff, but you don't do it. Your life doesn't change. You still don't like people. You still talk evil about people, gossip. Imagine vain things. It's not doing you any good. So they receive the wisdom, but they don't do anything with it. Not helping them. But there are those who will grow and impact the most for the kingdom of God. And they are those who read, hear, receive, and respond. They read it, or they hear it. They receive it. And, like these people here, they respond. How great this chapter is to show people who, who were already sensitive to the things of God, had already made changes in their life for the things of God. But when the Word of God was read to them and they found out, oh, there's some more things we're not doing that's, that God asked for, immediately looked to change it. What a, what a wonderful thing it is to see that. I put this in your outline for you. What we learn from the Word needs to change the way we live. What we learn from the Word needs to change the way we live. If it doesn't change the way we live, why in the world are we studying it? Why are we putting so much time into it? It needs to change the way we live. There's the next one. If how we live changes the way we hear and receive the Word, we may be something that appears good, but we are certainly not a Christian. A Christian, by his definition, is one who is Christ-like. If the Word doesn't change the way we live, we are not Christ-like. If how we live changes the way we hear and receive the Word, we are anything but Christ-like. We will appear to be good to some people, but we are not Christ-like. When you look at people who live a lifestyle that the Word of God condemns, and the Word of God says, no, that is not the way that you were to live. Well, I still love God, but I want to live this way. No. You are hearing the Word of God the way that you want to live your life. That's not it. You cannot hear the Word of God through how you want to live your life. The Word of God needs to change how we live our life. That is important. Now, I apologize for my wrong use of the word here, but somehow I got the wrong one in there. Uh, but here in this chapter, we understand that grief will work against the joy of the Lord. Grief will work against the joy of the Lord. Well, if we are going to let the Word of God change the way we live, then I have to make sure that I change the way I live in this area. People, There are some people that hang on to their grief. No, no, you can't tell me I can't be sad about this. Oh, yes, I can, because the Word of God says you you got to let it go. Not me telling you. The Word of God says it. No, but you don't understand. See, you're letting your life change the way you hear the Word of God. You can't do that. You've got to let the Word of God change the way that you live your life. Well, you don't know how great my grief is. You don't know how great my sadness is. You don't know the thing that I've lost. Here in this chapter, we understand that grief will work against the joy of the Lord. You will not get the benefit of the joy of the Lord in your life as long as you hang on to your grief. You can be sad for a little while. Word of God even says, you know, mourning may last for a morning, a little time. Uh, but 
it's got to go. You got to let it fall away. You can have a grief for a little bit of time, but you got to understand, nope, we got to go. Even David, grieving over the death of his son. Once his son died, he got up, washed his face, and went about life. He wrote some things about the joy of the Lord too. We know we cannot have the joy of the Lord take its seat in our life if grief has already taken it. Grief is already there. So, will I change the way I live to find a better life with more joy? Or continue to hang on to the grief giving it room in me? There's another question. Will tradition dominate some of my decisions more than the will or the word of God? Sometimes tradition can dominate our decisions and we don't even realize they have. Some people, the decisions like where I go to school. Why did you choose to go to school at that, that particular college? Well, my mom went there. My dad went there. That's where they met. My grandparents went there. I'll be the fourth generation person to go to that school. See, tradition is dictating where you go. You're not listening to the Spirit of God to hear what He has to say on the subject. You've already made your decision based on tradition. How about your occupation? Why did you become an electrician? Well, my dad was an electrician. His dad was an electrician. His dad before him was an electrician. Well, you took your occupation based on your tradition, not based on what the Spirit of God was leading you to. And I'm not saying that you missed it. I'm not saying that you can't be that because uh, your relatives were. I'm just saying don't make the decision based on tradition. Make the decision based on what the Word of God has to say. How about how I vote? Some people, are, that's, that's decided by what my parents and grandparents have done before me. How I understand a passage of Scripture. Well, I was always taught it was this way. I've always believed it's this way. Yeah, but what if that way isn't right? What if your tradition is holding you back from understanding what the Word of God has to really say? What about a song or a hymn? I sing it despite its words are against the faith of God. Yeah, but we've always sung that song. I mean, I just got comfort out of singing that song. It's just, it's been a tradition in our family. We've always sung that song. Or sometimes we have to leave tradition when God can come along and say, hey, here's what it is. And this is what these people did. They had a tradition of how they did this. And the Word of God came along and said, wait a minute, our tradition has not told us to do this. But the Word of God is telling us to. We will leave our tradition and we will do what the Word of God has done. That was a big move for them. That is hundreds of of years of tradition and they let it go because the word of God had said this Uh, that just is such a testimony to this group of people they may have some problems and they had some problems Nehemiah's outlined they had a lot of problems going on but oh how good it is that their hearts are hey if you show me in the word of God that I'm wrong I will change it I will make it happen the way that God says I should let it happen God did not leave us on our own understanding. He gave us his wisdom in his word. He gave us his wisdom with the gifts that he has put in the church to help us along that way. But we have to seek them out. We got to show up. We got to listen. I got to hear the words that are taught, the words that are said, and then I got to take them and I got to apply them. No one else can apply them in my life. I have to do it myself. But if you do it, If you will bypass things that you have done based on tradition. If you will bypass 
things that you've done because you were taught wrong or you didn't understand it correctly. And as soon as you understand it right, oh, I see that this, I'm going to change that right now and we're going to make the adjustment and I'm going to go on the way that God says to go on. Oh, your life will change. If you will let go of the grief and not have it be seated in your life anymore and embrace the joy of the Lord, it will be your strength. There's a whole lot more strength to the joy of the Lord coming in your life and filling you up with strength and all the strength that you can muster. Now understand this. You can muster up some strength. You can do some things on your own. I'm not telling you that you are weak. You can muster up your own strength, hang on to your grief, and get through each day. Find enough strength to get through the next day. But you will not enjoy life. It will become a, 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 something that you dread. Oh, i got to make it through another day. Oh, the things that come against me. All the... All this stuff, I just don't want it. No, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's your strength. You want to get a good example of this, just take a look at a little kid. Some kids are happier than other kids, but you take a kid filled with joy. Oh, they're just bounding with energy. They're just ready to take on. They make a mistake. Ah, it's all right. They just pick up and they go because that joy is their strength. That's where you want to be as a Christian. It's a whole lot easier whole lot easier when you live life with the joy of the Lord as your strength than using all the strength that you can muster. You can get so far with the strength that you can muster. But you can get a whole lot further, a whole lot easier if you do it the Lord's way. Well, Father, we thank you for this joy that is our strength. I thank you for the joy that you have made available to us. It's here. But we've got to take that grief that's in us and unseat it from its place and bring that joy in we got to sometimes do the things that we may not necessarily want to do. We have to go. We have to eat. Drink sweet things. Enjoy life. Give to other people. Boy, if we just follow that simple list that they were given to do and do it ourselves, we can unseat grief from our life. I thank you that there is no tradition on the inside of us that we will not let go when you show us the wisdom from your word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.